Uh, grab your Bible, if you would, and go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, in just a minute, I'll begin in verse number 24. And uh, we're going to look at the next section in our study. Uh, in the book of Colossians, Pastor John is preaching in Alberta today. Uh, Pastor Josh had to go out of town as a, a part of his work for military, and so we appreciate John preaching. So Pastor John and I got together and studied through this text and made an outline, and so uh, he's preaching uh, the same text in Alberta today. Before I do that, I want to mention uh, this a frame that's sitting up here on the stage, what it represents, because uh, this wasn't a campaign for a week or two, but this is an ongoing emphasis in our church. Actually, it's in our denomination as well, entitled, Who's Your One? Uh, thinking about the masses that need Christ, but narrowing it all the way down to one person. Who's one person that you know that needs Jesus? And so what we're encouraging you to do is to, when you're walking out of the service today, there's a table uh, over to the right out those doors, and there's a white card and an orange card, and let me tell you uh, what they represent. The white card represents someone the best you know or can tell. They don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. Uh, they're not bearing fruit in their life. They're, they're not showing any evidence of Christianity. Again, we're not the final judge. He is. But the best you can tell, they don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Write their name on this white card and drop it in the little drop box uh, right beside where these cards are in the lobby. What we're doing is we're taking those cards and we're placing a white ping pong ball uh, in this case to represent all of the people in our church that we are praying for to be saved, okay? And so right now, I would say we've probably got about, I don't know, 40 or 50 uh, white ping pong balls in there. That represents the names of people that we're praying for. Had a lady this week who said to me that she has the name of her one in her desk drawer at work, and every morning when she starts, she pulls that card out, and she prays for that person to be saved. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that powerful? What if more of us, what if we started our day, all of us started our day by praying over someone that needs Christ as Lord and Savior? So that person we're praying for, we're going to put a white ping pong ball and we want to see this case filled up. Now, we're beginning now uh, to put orange, an orange ping pong ball in there and those represent people with which we have shared the gospel. It doesn't mean necessarily that they responded or that they were saved, but that we at least shared our testimony and gave them an opportunity to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Uh, you might use the three circles gospel presentation process. Uh, you might do the Romans road or whatever method you have. You can't go wrong with the method, I don't think, because when the Holy Spirit's at work, God is the one that changes hearts. He wants us just to share the gospel, okay? And so as you share the gospel... We want you to fill out the orange card and drop it in the box. And for us, that'll represent gospel presentations. And we'll begin to fill this thing up uh, with, uh, with orange and white ping pong balls on an ongoing basis to keep evangelism as a visual in front of us. I've not done this yet, but I've got, uh, I need to drop two orange ones in there, okay, for people that I have shared the gospel with. And uh, I want you to engage in evangelism. Who knows what God could and would do through this if we would just be faithful to share the gospel every day in our life, our families, our community, and on the job. Have you found Colossians chapter 1 yet? If you haven't, I just suggest you look intelligently at whatever page you're at by now, all right? Colossians chapter 1 Verse 24, if you don't have a Bible, there are some in the racks and the chairs around you. Uh, if you, uh, as some of our folks, I saw Mr. Jim Calloway. Was he in the first service today? Uh, Jim, Jim was here just a little bit ago, and, and uh, Jim has told me many times through the years, because his eyesight is so bad, those verses up on the screen actually help him to be able to read the Bible with us. And sometimes we don't think about that, but uh, uh, that's one of the reasons we put them on the screen. Here we go. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24. We're in a series entitled, It's All About Jesus. And we're walking through verse by verse uh, the book of Colossians. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, 
of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And may God add his blessings to the reading of his word. May we pray together. God, we thank you for the holy, inspired, infallible word that you have given to us to read and to study and pray through, to give us understanding, food for our souls, spiritual growth. You've led us in the study in the book of Colossians, and my, how rich, how rich it is. Every verse on every page, there's so much in it for us. Thank you for the salvation that we have in Christ, that we are in Christ. And today, as we look at this important matter, Remind us today that every Christian has a ministry, a personal ministry. It's not someone else's ministry, but it's my ministry, something that you have called me to. Please help us. Help us to answer the call to ministry. If there's someone here today that doesn't know Christ, may their eyes be opened, may their ears be opened to hear and receive the good news of the grace of the Lord Jesus And I pray this in Christ's name and God's people said, amen. We had a cardinal sin in college and in seminary. It was a, it was a sin to which there remained no sacrifice for your sin. If you were to commit this sin, you would certainly be shamed and kicked out of seminary. Uh, You would likely not get received back in or be accepted to any other place of study. When I think about this particular sin, I think about the fact that it is the first cousin to stealing. No one likes a thief. How many of you agree with me? Don't touch my stuff. Don't take my stuff. Nobody, nobody likes a thief. Another cousin to this sin, I would say, would be identity theft. Uh, anybody had your identity stolen before? That's no fun. I was speaking to someone in the church this week who said to me that they were doing some very bad things in a state in the Midwest. The problem is it wasn't them. It was someone that had stole their identity. No one likes that. What a miserable, awful thing that is. Let let me take this sin or this concept just a little bit further. And let me ask you, what if you discovered that the message that I am preaching you today was actually someone else's sermon? that I had just printed it off the internet. And I got up here and I, I act like I studied for it. I act like that I wrote it when it actually was written by someone else. Let me let you in on a little secret. Preachers do steal shamelessly. But we don't steal sermons and outlines. That is a no-no. That's a sin. We steal thoughts, quotes, maybe illustrations, but as... H.B. Charles, a pastor in Jacksonville, says, when you're studying and preparing for your sermon, you should milk a lot of cows, but churn your own butter, okay? In other words, there's a lot of things you can read, a lot of places you can go. Sometimes in my sermon preparation, I will listen to another pastor who's preaching the same text uh, just to hear what he had to say. As a matter of fact, I got a text, I think it was on Thursday of this week from 
uh, Pastor Jim Locke at Hillcrest who just said, hey, he's preaching through Colossians, I'm preaching through Colossians, and, and he said, hey, I listened to your sermon last Sunday. And uh, he kind of gave me a thumbs up a little bit, but we listen to each other's sermons and so forth. But at the end of the day, when it comes time to preach, we're called to develop our own messages and to churn our own butter. Now, I talk about all of those examples to bring you, of course, you know what I'm talking about, right? I'm talking about the sin of plagiarism, right? Now, plagiarism is not mentioned in the Bible but we all know that we shouldn't do it, right? Well, I was reading an article this week, and it's interesting, Pastor John and I are preaching the same, kind of the same text today, and he and I are in my office early this morning, and we both read the same article this week that used a, a two words that I've never seen put together, and those two words are gospel plagiarism. And I begin to think about those two words and think that, that I, I preach a gospel, I believe a gospel that did not originate with me. The gospel came from God to us. The gospel actually came to men who actually penned the 66 books of the Bible. The gospel came from God to the writers of the Holy Bible, and what I profess today in knowing who Christ is, that he's my Savior and my Lord, and that I need him, I certainly do not take credit for that on my own. I did not come up with that on my own, but rather I discovered it by reading the Bible and realizing my need for Christ. Is that your testimony today? That you realized how much you needed Christ. We cannot preach a gospel on our own that is not ours. In other words, the gospel has to become personal. Yes, it came from God through men in the Holy Scriptures to us, but there comes a point where we realize the gospel is all about Christ in me, me being in Christ and Christ being in me. In last week's section, verses 15 to 23 in Alberta, I called it the Mount Everest of the New Testament where Paul writes the most clear passage about the doctrine of Christ and who Jesus is. And I want to bring your attention to the last word of verse 23 that leads us into this section today when we're talking about the gospel and it being our own and us not taking credit for it that it came from God when we receive Christ as Lord and Savior, Paul said, it's through the gospel, through my salvation, that I have became a minister. I became a minister. Now, the word there, minister, in the original language is diakonos, which is the word from which we get deacon, okay? The word deacon. It's a word of service. It's a word of ministry. Look at me. If you're a Christian and you know Christ is Lord and Savior, then you know the gospel and ministry is not about you. It's not about me, but it's about Christ. Christ in me. That Christ lives in me and Christ lives through me. Paul said, when I got wrecked on the road to Damascus and God radically changed my mind, my life, I immediately became a minister. Now, there are occasions in my life where people introduce me and they'll say something like this, hey, this is Tim and he's in full-time ministry. And I totally understand what they're saying. They're saying that, that my vocation, what I do every day of the week, my job, if you will, is that I'm in ministry. But listen to me, there's a big disconnect, I think, in the church in understanding that we are all in full-time ministry. We are all in full-time ministry. When you're on your job this week, you're in full-time ministry. When you're at home, you're in full-time ministry. When you're in your neighborhood, you're in full-time ministry. Everywhere you go, you're in full-time ministry. You are looking for opportunities to serve the Christ that saved you. Now, in verse 24, the passage I read for you is our text today, we're transitioning into a section of what Christ-centered ministry looks like. 
Sometimes people say, well, pastor, you, you talk about ministry and, and so forth. Well, what do I do? I'm glad you asked. We'll talk about that in the message today. Uh, the, the passage talks about how ministry makes us feel. It, it talks about what we will encounter as we do ministry. Paul says, first of all, in verse number 24, in Christ-centered ministry, we will suffer. Now, some of you are thinking, Pastor, couldn't you have started at a more positive place? <laughs> That's not a glamorous place to start, is it? We're going to suffer. There's going to be hardship, persecution. There's going to be difficult days. Grab some books on church history and trace back through the centuries about Christians and the church and what they felt, what they encountered, what they were doing. And here's what you will find. History reveals that the church has always thrived when it was in the midst of suffering and persecution. When you're in the midst of that, how do you respond? Well, it'd be real easy to get down and out, right? Real easy to question God, to wonder why, why am I going through this? What should be our attitude in the midst of suffering? Well, Paul's attitude in verse 24, he literally says that it makes me so happy to be suffering for you. Now, how much sense does that make? <laughs> Seriously, how, how much sense does that make? For someone to say, I'm happy that I'm suffering, not only that, but I'm happy to be suffering for someone else. Paul was suffering for the church. He was suffering for the cause of Christ. He was suffering for the advancement of the gospel. He, he literally says, I'm suffering for in your place. I'm suffering for you in your place. We know that he was incarcerated in Rome when he wrote this letter. Now, how many of you at times have said something like this, uh, man, my kids are sick, my grandchildren are sick, and you said, if I could, I would suffer for them. If I could, I would take their sickness in my body. I would endure their, I would take their place. Paul is saying, I am glad to take your spot to represent you as children of the king in suffering for the cause of Christ. You do know that you and I have a heritage of brothers and sisters that have shown their awareness of their need to suffer for the cause of Christ. What do you mean, Tim? Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Read your Bible. Christians through the centuries have been aware that they needed to suffer in order for the gospel to be advanced. You remember back in Acts chapter 5 when the apostles were coming away from the council they were in front of, of the religious leaders of the day. Acts 5 and verse 41 says they're leaving this time of persecution and interrogation and they're not having a conversation questioning God. They're not cursing under their breath. They're not frustrated because of what they're going through, but rather they left the presence of the council and they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 12, Paul is speaking to young Timothy, the pastor, and he says to him, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Verse Peter chapter 4 and verse 13. Peter, speaking of suffering, says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now let me ask you, how many of you really believe that when we preach and we proclaim the gospel and we invite people to receive Jesus, that we need to make it very clear that all of your problems are not going to go away? That when you come to Jesus, this is not going to be banana splits and vacations. That when you come to Jesus, as a matter of fact, Jesus started right with his disciples and he said, they hate me and they're going to hate you. They are going to kill me and they're going to kill you. 
And every one of them except one was martyred for his faith. What's the point? The point is that in Christ-centered ministry, we're going we're gonna to face persecution. We're going to face suffering. Don't you feel almost a little guilty today that you and I are sitting here in this nice air-conditioned room? We just had a nice meal and some refreshments and some coffee next door, and we've got a wonderful time of fellowship and just the first service and second service and small groups and everybody hanging out and having a good time. You know what? I drove on this property this morning, walked in this building, and I'm not giving it one thought that I might be persecuted, attacked, or even killed because I came here today to preach the gospel. Not even cross my mind. You walked in here today, you're not fearful of your life. You're not fearful of the government coming in and driving us out. You're not fearful of someone confiscating your Bible. We live in the land of the free and the home of the brave, and we're blessed. We're blessed to have that freedom. For us, persecution is the air conditioning going out during the service. We're spoiled. We're spoiled. But there are brothers and sisters today around the world that are doing what Paul says in the last half of verse 24, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. What an interesting statement. The only place in the New Testament you'll find this, and I'm telling you, there are reams and reams of paper and volumes and volumes of books by smart people debating and discussing what in the world does Paul mean by filling up what is lacking. I don't have time to get into all the different opinions. Some of them are so clearly unbiblical, it would be a waste of time for me to describe that for you, including that Paul was working and earning his salvation as he was suffering there in the prison. Again, so many other interpretations of that but let me get directly to what most sound evangelical uh, scholars believe this text is saying that when when paul is filling up what is lacking he is saying i am a part of completing christ's mission of the gospel so that the gospel of jesus christ would be spread to the ends of the earth there must be brothers and sisters that endure persecution so therefore, he is called to this. Let me ask you a personal question. Do you understand as a Christian that you are called to suffer for the cause of Christ? Do you understand that? Do you understand that the day may come when Christian persecution in your lifetime may be exponentially worse than what you see today? The question in that moment is, what are we going to do? How many of you know that's a real test of your faith, right? That's a real test of my faith. When I'm under intense persecution, am I going to be able to rejoice? <laughs> am I going to be able to say, this is, this is great. I'm so thankful to be able to do this for the cause of Christ. Man, that's some great faith, isn't it? How many of you say, that's the kind of faith I aspire to have? But how many of you would say, I don't know if I have it right now? How many of you know this, this, is, not, this is not easy? This is hard. Christ-centered ministry. Paul said, we will suffer. What else do we do? I got to move fast. What else do we do? Christ-centered ministry. In verses 25 to 28, in Christ-centered ministry, we speak. We use our mouth, our voice to speak for the Lord. Paul said, I entered into this ministry because of stewardship that was given to me from God. He said it was given to me for you. So in other words, in his apostolic position, speaking to the, the Christians at Colossae, I'm doing this. God has called me to do this and to speak to you for you. Remember, this letter is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You do believe that, right? So God is inspiring Paul to write. He says, he's given me the stewardship. I'm writing this from God to you, from me, with the goal of making the word of God fully known. And then he goes on in verse 26 to say, the mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, 
To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. How many of you like a good mystery? Huh? This is a unique, this is a unique use by Paul here in this text. This word mystery. That which has not been revealed. That which is hidden. As a matter of fact, next week in the message uh, on down, Paul talks about the shadow, the shadow of the Old Testament. And of course, the Jews were always looking forward there. Many of them are still looking for a Messiah today, right? They're looking for the Messiah to come. And so this, this mystery has been hidden for century after century after century. What is God doing and how is God going to reveal the Messiah? And you and I sit here today knowing that 2,000 years ago, the mystery was uncovered. The mystery was revealed. Now think about this. The mystery was primarily for who? Primarily for the Jews, right? Because the Gentiles were not looking for the Messiah. As a matter of fact, in the first part of the New Testament, Jesus said, let's go to the Jews first. Let's go to the Jews first, and then we'll go to the Greek. Paul uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 16, the gospel now is not only for the Jew, but for the Gentile. And so Paul is just saying that God's redemptive plan has been hidden through the ages, certainly hidden from the Gentiles, but now it has been revealed to who? Look in your Bible, it's so important. It's been revealed to his saints. Remember that the natural man does not understand the things of God, neither can he. Only those whose eyes have been opened by the Spirit of God can fully understand the mysteries of the Scriptures, right? So the Scripture reveals the Word to us. So they waited and they waited and they wondered about the Messiah. Well, now the Messiah has been given to the Jews, revealed to the Jews, and they primarily rejected Him. And so now the Gospel has gone to the Gentiles. And so what are we supposed to do with this mystery? Paul said, we are to make it fully known. We are to speak of the mystery that has been given to us. In verse 25, there is an element that really speaks to me about the importance of making the word of God fully known. It's a phrase of completeness. Years ago, I used to hear preachers say that we need to preach the whole counsel of God. Have you ever heard that before? The whole counsel of God. We don't need to skip over any part of it, but we need to preach the whole Bible. The idea here is to lay out completely the word of God. Why? This is so important, church. It's so important. Why do we need to lay out the entirety of scriptures? Paul reminds us that we cannot know Christ in a better, fuller, and deeper way apart from a knowledge of the scripture. To make it fully known is actually a word of exposition. I believe it was at the heart of God's call to Paul's life, speaking and revealing truth. Look at me real quick. When I walk to this pulpit on Sunday, I don't have anything to talk about except what is written in the Scriptures. When I come Sunday, it's my job to give you the whole counsel of God, to not avoid one text in the Bible, but to give you the whole, the whole ball of wax, if you will, all right? To not hold back. And so let me go a step further and say that, that, I, that I believe once again in the importance of preaching, the importance of preaching the Bible. I'm 47 years old, and I want you to know I am at a juncture in my life where I do not have time or patience with fluffy preaching. Now you can put it under whatever category you want to put it under, but I'm telling you some of the things that I have listened to in recent days, I don't just go listen to people so I can have a bad attitude, but sometimes I listen to people and have a bad attitude. That is the fluffiest bunch of nothing burger I've ever heard in my life. That's what I say sometimes. Again, I'm not trying to attack anybody. But I believe this with all my heart. If you're going to get up and get ready and drive down here on Sunday, that you're coming for a reason. And I want you to know, if you came today for me to tickle your ears, I'm sorry, I'm not here to do that. I'm here to preach the Bible. There's a young lady in the first service today, and she was talking about 
you know, she'd visit some churches there and so forth. And she said, you know, I, I went to church and it was like I got a TED talk. It's like I got a TED and it was a good talk. There's a lot of good things in it. And I told her a story about somewhere I'd gone to church back in the summer. And, and I walked out of the service and I said to my family, that, that was incredible. I needed, to hear, I needed to hear all of that because there were so many good things in it. But it was nothing more than a TED talk. It wasn't scripture and what God has said. When we come together as God's people, it's time to hear the word of God because we have a great message. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, please hear me. We around here at this church, we need to stay focused on the gospel Sunday by Sunday by Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. It's all about the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. How could we go wrong talking about that? George Whitfield said, other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel. And I said, amen, there's a lot of preachers that are a lot better preachers than I am, but they don't have a better textbook or a better subject matter than I have. And that's Jesus Christ crucified. Billy Graham, 1949. He had some people that came into his life that we would put in the liberal category who were, who were trying to get Billy to doubt the sufficiency of Scripture. And, you know, they were, they were casting doubt about so many different things of the, the great truths of the Bible. And Billy Graham said, I was, I was a wreck. In my mind, I was just saying, I didn't know which way to go. I didn't know what to do. Get this, Billy Graham. How many of you can just hear his voice right now, right? Come to Christ, you know. I mean, Billy Graham. There's only one Billy Graham. Thank God for Billy Graham. Billy Graham was a man of God, I believe, with all my heart. Not perfect. But he was a man of God. And Billy Graham said, I would stand up in those crusades and I would, I would make these definitive statements. And he said, in my mind, in my heart, I would go, I'm not even sure I even believe that. And one day in the midst of his struggle, he went to the Sahara, Nevada, up into the mountain, and he took his Bible and he laid it out on a stump. And he got down and he began to pray and he began to pour his heart out to God. And he told God, God, I do not understand everything in the Bible. I, am not, I have not intellectually arrived at everything in the Bible. But on this particular day, with your help and by your grace, I am settling once and for all that this is the authoritative inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. About five years ago, I did a survey in this church, a blind survey. We got the survey back, and I'm reading down through there, just the different categories of this, that, and the other. And I got to one that said, do you believe the Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God? And that survey revealed to us that 17% of the people in this church did not believe that. You can imagine how it grieved my spirit that day, five years ago. And I hope maybe if you were one of those 17% that you've now arrived at a point where you've gotten over that hurdle. And I know there are a lot of questions. I know there are a lot of things that come up when it comes to the scriptures. But here's what I know. God has made known himself to us in specific revelation by giving us his word. And what we need is not less Bible, but more Bible. And what we need is to get deeper in the scriptures, not so that we can get smarter, so that we can pass an exam at church. We don't give exams at church unless you're in my systematic theology class on Wednesday night. There's a little hint to all of you that are. But we learn the Holy Scriptures so that we might go out as the sent ones and make Him fully known to a lost and dying world. Early church father, St. Francis of Assisi, is known for saying, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. Is it all right with you if I put a great big old slash over that? not to be disrespectful, but to be biblical and say you cannot preach the gospel unless you use words. You cannot speak Christ crucified. 
You cannot tell someone to acknowledge their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ by going, You can't, you can't live your entire life in lifestyle evangelism thinking, well, my faith is personal. I'll keep it to myself. I won't say anything about it. And then people will look at me and they'll see what a great person I am. And then they're going to come up to me and say, you know, I just, I've been watching you and I just don't know how or what or why, but you're such an awesome person. Why are you so awesome? I know that happens, but you know how few a time that happens? We're not called to be silent. In Christ-centered ministry, we are called to speak. Look at 28. What does it say? What does it say in verse 28? Him we, him we, how do you proclaim? With your mouth. We warn everyone. How do you warn? We teach everyone. How do we teach? By speaking of the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. In Christ-centered ministry, Paul says, we speak. We speak for the Lord. Very quickly, verse 29, in Christ-centered ministry, we sweat. We sweat. For this I toil. You know what that word toil is? It's hard work. <laughs> Paul says this is a labor how many of you have found that ministry is hard work? That Christ-centered ministry is not for the faint of heart. It's not for the weak. I took piano lessons several years, many years ago, and, and I was disastrous because my left hand had never met my right hand. I tried. I really did. I ended up with a trumpet because it has three valves and I only have to use three fingers but I played in one piano recital as a child. My mom remembers this. The only song I ever learned was the old hymn, Work for the Night is Coming. How many of you old timers know that hymn? Work for the Night is Coming. And it's based off of what Jesus said in John chapter 9 and verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Let me ask you, when's the last time that you were in a full-blown sweat for Jesus? When you're laboring when you're toiling, when you're struggling, when you're plowing, when you're working for the Lord. In 1870, Charles Spurgeon was in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England, and he was preaching a message about how we must work for Christ. And he said, labor again means hard work. He is no laborer who takes the spade to play with it as a little child upon the sand. He that labors works till the sweat streams from his face. And he that would win souls will find that though it is all of the Holy Spirit, yet it involves on his part the sternest form of spiritual work. Richard Baxter used to say, a Puritan preacher, he used to say to pastors, pastors, if you find your ministry to be easy, I find it hard that you will have the right answers on judgment day. Think about that. And let me add to that. If you're in this room today and you're a teacher, you're a worker, you're a servant, and everything about your life is easy and everything about the ministry is easy, I just have to wonder about your ministry. <laughs> because ministry is hard. Ministry is a labor we're going to give an account. We're going to give an account for our work for the Lord. Let me ask you, are, are you today maybe in cruise control? Are you maybe one of the ones a moment ago who would say, you know, I don't really remember the last time I broke out in a sweat because I was laboring for the Lord. Too many Christians today are attempting to do the bare minimum or nothing. And I know I'm not speaking to everybody in this church because our church is to God be the glory of the exception. There's some people in this church that sweat and work and labor, and it's like there's no end. I'm telling you, there are people in this church that I look at them and I go, I hope you'll take a break because they're laboring in the kingdom. 
And if I could just be blunt for just a minute, I don't want to be sarcastic or unkind in any way, but just hear me for just a minute. Some of you can't even get out of bed to serve Jesus. Some of you don't get your hands dirty for Jesus. Some of you are not trying to find the work that he has for you. Some of you are sitting back thinking somebody else is going to do the work. And I remind you once again that God has called every one of us to full-time ministry to labor in his kingdom for his glory. I got real quiet on me. In chapter 2, Christ-centered ministry, in it we will struggle for one another. We'll struggle with one another and we'll struggle for one another. What did Paul say? I want you to know that I'm struggling for you. I'm struggling for you and for the Christians in Laodicea. And can you just feel his burden jump off the page in verse number two? I'm concerned because I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged. John Stott said, discouragement is the occupational hazard of the Christian ministry. Anybody in here would be honest today and say, Tim, I found myself discouraged. Yeah, thank you, both of you. 28 years of ministry, 28 years of ministry. Do you know how many times I have found myself in a dry season? I'm talking dry. I'm talking barren. I'm talking, God, are you there? Is my preaching doing any good? Am I, am I being the kind of husband I need to be? Am I being the kind of father I need to be? God, why have I faithfully preached the gospel for months and I'm not seeing anybody saved and come to Christ? Friend, that'll get you discouraged. You're trying to serve the Lord and do the best you can. And, and man, you're, you're, you're ministering to people and you're loving on people and the car, the refrigerator, the lawnmower, everything breaks. Oh, maybe you've never been there, but some of us have. <laughs> and you get discouraged. You get discouraged. You know how many pastors today walk to the pulpit so discouraged? Now listen to me. Listen to my heart for just a minute. Do you know how many pastors today mounting the pulpit just like I'm doing right now, and they're so discouraged they didn't even want to go to church this morning? You know how many pastors have been laboring in the vineyard preaching the gospel for years and have seen no one join the church? How many of you can see how that would be discouraging? You know what we typically do? We typically pick the pastor up by the seat of his pants and throw him out in the parking lot and blame him for everything. Yeah, that's what happens. And I'm not saying pastors are not at fault or don't make mistakes or need to do things differently. That's not my point. But the International Mission Board would have fired Adoniram Judson for the 14 years he was on the mission field with no converts. There I said it. And then after that 14th year, <laughs> the rest is history. He's a great missionary now, right? He, oh, he's awesome now. But for 14 years, he had to endure dark nights and long days because he didn't see fruit in his ministry. Paul is saying, I'm struggling for you because I want you to stay encouraged. Please hear me today. Please hear the heart of this pastor. I want you to stay encouraged. I don't want you to feel beat down. I don't want you to feel like you're not doing anything. Some of you are teaching a class. You're loving your neighbor. You're feeding homeless people. On top of the fact you're ministering to your family full time, ladies. And you think, I'm not doing anything great for the Lord. Oh, yes, you are. Oh, yes, you are. You just stay faithful to Christ and learn that part of being in Christian community is that we struggle together and we encourage one another and we do life together. Not only was he concerned and struggling about their encouragement, but he was struggling about their unity. He didn't want the church to become divided. I'm almost done. I was on the phone this week with a man that's been in our church and he lives in another place now and he had called me. We were talking for just a minute and he was sharing with me about a situation going on in his church. For about an hour, I listened to it and 
Honestly, it sounded like the Ringling Brothers Circus. On Wednesday night, they have a big church-wide meeting and the church is divided and, and there's, there's lawsuits going across the aisle and across the room and there's, there's court orders and, and there's all this confusion and nobody knows who's right and who's wrong. How many of you know the devil is loving that? Loving it. I mean, he's having a party over it. You know why? Because what the devil wants to do is the devil wants to divide. He wants to divide. Now look at me. Look at me. I got to be quick here. What brings us together when we talk about unity, you cannot have biblical Christ-centered unity and throw doctrine out the door. You can't have true unity in the church if you do not embrace the doctrine of Christ. That it's truly all about Christ and it's not about us. And, and what happens, Paul lays it out right here in this text. What happens is when we're knit together and we're focused on the riches of full assurance and the understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, who is that? It is Christ. It's in Christ all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are. And so we're focused on that, and that's what unifies us, and that's what brings us together. In Christ-centered ministry, we struggle together to encourage one another and to fight for the unity of the gospel. In verses 4 and 5, he finishes up, Christ-centered ministry remains settled in Christ. We are settled in Christ. Now, now look at me for just a minute. We were talking the other day as a staff. I don't know if you noticed it, but the additions of our staff members and those that we've been able to bring on, I praise God for that. And man, they're all doing an awesome job. But you may have noticed that our additions and our staff is pretty young. <laughs> I'm the old man. So we're talking about this the other day. And I want to say this, how thankful I am that the staff that God has blessed us with, including Pastor Josh and everybody, they have a heart for the gospel. So I want you to know, as, as Paul says, we'll see it in the next section, we are not driven around by fads and every wind that's blowing. We don't have a desire on Sunday to produce cool church we're not faddish. You can look at my dress and tell I'm not faddish. Okay? And again, I'm not picking on anybody's dress or anything. Just please hear my heart for a minute. We're not trying to emulate somebody else. We learn from a lot of people. But let me tell you what we're focused on. I promise you. We are focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ and discipleship. That's what it's about. We're not focused on the attractional church model. We're focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ and discipleship. That's what's burning in our hearts today. And I want you to know we're settled on that. We're settled on that. And we want to give our energy all of these days to that. So I'm closing. Christ-centered ministry. Let me ask you a question, personal question. How's your ministry going? How's your ministry going? You've been sweating lately? Has it been hard? <laughs> Are you trying to get a deeper understanding of where, what it is that you've been wired to do, what God's created you to do? How's your ministry going? Maybe I'm speaking to someone today, you understand you've been up in the stands <laughs> and you've thought of ministry more for the deacons or the staff, the elders. But God showed you today that ministry is not for the professionals or the ordained, but ministry is for every Christian. Every Christian. So, we're fixing a stand. As you walk out this door in just a minute, I want you to pray today that God would guide you this, this afternoon when you walk out the door, that God would guide you this week, every day, the places you go, the appointments you have on your calendar, that God, through His Holy Spirit, 
would guide you to fulfill the ministry that he has called you to. Last statement and I'm done. God did not save you and give you fire insurance for you to sit on the sidelines. God saved you. He not only called you into the family through salvation, but he called you into the ministry. One more statement. Is that okay? One more statement. Steve Gaines says, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. Why am I saying that? I'm saying that to the people in the church who are doing too much. It's okay to take a break. I'm not talking about a two-year break. I'm talking about to rest. Rest in Christ. Because you're needed for the long haul in the kingdom. Amen? Can we stand together? I'm done. You can't leave here today without making a decision. We're locking the doors right now. Okay? Question number one, do you know Christ as Lord and Savior? Have you acknowledged your sin? Have you believed on Christ, confessed Him as Lord? If you've not done that, in just a minute when we walk out, we're going to have standing beside each one of these doors what we call encouragers. They're counselors, if you will. If you've not settled your eternal salvation, I want you to walk up to one of these men or one of these ladies and say, would you pray with me? They'll take you in one of these rooms where it's quiet, nobody around, you won't be disturbed. They'll spend as much time with you as you need to help you understand what that means, okay? Don't go away without Jesus. Please don't go away without Christ. That's just the way we handle it around here. We, we send you out for counseling and encouragement, okay? The second thing, if you're a Christian right now, we're going to walk out this door and I'm going to ask you to make a decision right now by God's grace and with his help, what kind of ministry you're going to do this week, okay? And I want you to pray and ask God to help you fulfill the ministry that he has called you to. Would you bow your head with me?